Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First one on the list today is QQC. QQC stands for Cute Quick Controls 2. Cute Quick is the, I guess technically it's an API. Um, I mean, it's complex, I guess. But yeah, Cute Quick is the front end language, the, the scripting language essentially, to build Cute applications without writing all the C++. Instead, you, you can use QML, which is the cute markup language and and design an interface and and to some degree a bunch of backend code that allows you to construct your own desktop applications. So there are two QQC2 packages uh, installed or available here. Well, and installed. Uh, there's QQC2-Breeze-Style, which is the styling side of of drawing widgets in in a cute quick application and this ensures that you have breeze available to you and then there's qqc2-desktop style which ensures that you have the the native widget styling of whatever you're running this application on this is a fascinating fascinating modularity of 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 applications and I, I think for a very long time I, I didn't understand that applications had so many unique elements that could be considered unique elements and that always seemed puzzling to me and I thought it was almost a like a weakness like there wasn't any cohesion in a lot of applications because the widget set was different from the from, from the layout itself and that was different from the 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 window decoration and so on I didn't understand how how that could sort of all fit together and produce an integrated, cohesive application. But actually, that's a normal thing. There are there are certain elements that applications simply are expected to have, or or you can expect an application to potentially re- require some elements. So like a tabbed interface, or a text entry field, or a combo box where you enter a, a number and then increment it. Or, or decrement it based on uh, some controls, radio selection buttons, buttons, and, and so on. So all of these little elements that you kind of piece together into the application, those come sort of pre-programmed in a lot of different ways. I mean, there always has to be a fallback if that thing exists. And that's why in in some cases, you might see a computer falling back to a really, really basic ugly looking widget set that you're that doesn't quite fit in with the rest of your your computer now in other cases that's because they're simply using a different library a different framework and and that framework doesn't have access to the latest and greatest look and feel of of your computer so for instance if you if you open up what, what was it not i think it maybe it was xmms could be xmms um but there's another one, Servicia? No, not Servicia. That looks perfectly fine. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the, the stupid application's name now. 
but there are some applications out there. No, oh, it's the one that's a front end of CVS, I think. No, that is Servicia. Anyway, there are applications out there. You open them up. They were written a long time ago, like 2002, 2003, long time ago. They're using widgets from that long ago. And so they look kind of ugly. They look chunky and blocky. It probably would have looked fine in the context of when they were written, but now a lot less fine. Well, you, you may not be able to theme that because at least not without a lot of effort, you know, basically reprogramming it because that framework just doesn't have that, doesn't have that allowance, doesn't have that built into it. But Qt is a quite, it's a modern and very flexible framework. And, and by design, it has access to system uh, sort of default widget sets so that it that it fits right into the rest of the desktop. Now, on Windows and Mac OS, there is but one system default. I mean, that's that's the sort of the corporate, this is our look and feel, this is our visual branding, that's it. On Linux, there's lots of different choices. You don't have to listen to anybody's corporate branding, visual branding style guide or anything. You can have your desktop look however you want it to. And we've seen that in system settings where you can control the, the different themes and you can download new ones from uh, whatever they call get hot new stuff now. I think it's just, I don't know, go to the KDE store or something. But you can you can download new new buttons, new new looks, new styles. And so once you do that, then those widgets exist. Those basic components of an application exist on your computer. And you can tell things to use that style so that it that applications that were written just with plain old cute, with no knowledge of what you have written on your, com- saved on your computer, it has access to those. So that's QQC2 desktop style specifically. QQC2 Breeze style, of course, is the Breeze style, which the KDE project considers their visual brand. So if you're just going with stock, boring old KDE, like I am, uh, then, then QQC to dash breeze style is probably what you would be using for your cute, quick application. And that's fine. But the important, the takeaway here is that there's a lot of flexibility, partly due to just modular programming, but, but also don't discount the role that cute plays here. Cute is a really, really nice framework. I can't emphasize that enough. Give it a look sometime. And certainly maybe cute quick is the place to start. Are you looking for an application that rocks? Well, maybe you should take a look at Rocks, R-O-C-S. Rocks is a data visualization um, IDE. It's 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 a it's a funny application. It's a little bit it's it it's, it feels hyper specific to a very kind of like specific task. So it calls itself a graph theory IDE, and it's used for designing and analyzing graph algorithms. It provides an easy to use visual editor for creating graphs, a scripting engine to execute algorithms, and several helper tools for simulations and experiments. Algorithms are specified in JavaScript. So it's kind of a JavaScript IDE, but specifically to render like like I say, g- graphs. So uh, if you can think of, or you, you might think about um, programmatic, uh, procedural construction of something and how you might express that through code and see it instantly drawn in in, in the uh, in the little canvas area. I can't think exactly of the use case of this application personally. I mean, it's within the educational, it's within K 
edu. So it's an educational application. So maybe that's the use case. Maybe that's as far as this goes. But I don't know. I mean, is it, um, is the, are the graphs that you generate, is it pure JavaScript? Is there some kind of special library happening there? And if there's a special library, what's the expected method of, uh, of, of bringing that into some other into, into something else, into some other use, some other application, your, your own custom code. Uh, so unfortunately, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot I was able to do with rocks because it fails to launch. And I don't really see, yeah, I don't really see any pure JavaScript in the, in the package. So it must be, I guess, yeah, it's all like compiled libraries, some header files, things like that. So I, I don't, I, yeah, I guess the use case is purely just education. Like that's what I'm assuming. Anyway, so I type in rocks, for instance, and it's a, uh, sends me a K crash, uh, error message to my terminal crashing, crash recursion counter to application name rocks path user bin PID 15923 arguments, nothing. Attempting to start uh, user lib64 lib exec, Dr. Conkey, and apparently that doesn't, oh, it does. Okay, here it is in the system, in the system tray, there's Dr. Conkey telling me that there's been a crash. Doesn't really do anything for me though. It's just, it's just alerting me. So let's do an S trace of rocks, S trace, R-O-C-S. Enter gives me a bunch of output, of course. And then at some point it reaches the K crash alert, attempting to start user blah, 55K crash, attempting to start Dr. Conkey, uh, PR cuddle, PR set P tracer. I don't see anything that's really obvious as to what's going on. So I, off the cuff, I'm going to say that it might just be easier to go get an updated version of the application and compile it myself. I mean, I would have to, in order to figure out what was wrong, I'd have to go get the source code anyway to compile it with debug flags. So uh, this is maybe a good example or a good opportunity to demonstrate just how fast this sort of fix can be, hopefully. I mean, unless all of this backfires. So, okay, I know it's rocks. I, I see here in the description of the package that the sources are available at kde apps.kde.org slash rocks. Simple. Go there. Uh, over here on the right, it looks like it's pointing to the source code, telling me to browse source code. And that looks like it's gone to the GitLab, the KDE GitLab instance, uh, to the rocks page. There are tags. Those are releases usually in GitLab. So I'll click on that. And oh boy, there's been enough activity here to make me think that I've probably, so for instance, here's rocks uh, 23. So that was this year. It was released 2023, uh, which means that probably it's being designed at this point by now for a KDE version that exceeds what I have installed on my computer. And if I want to see what version of KDE I have installed, of course, I could go to K Info Center and take a look at the KDE Plasma version 5.2.3.5 and the KDE Framework version 5.90.0. That doesn't really, I don't actually know what these were built for, but I'm going to assume that if it was 
updated in 2023. It was not, you know, it was pro- it's probably using components of KDE that were not around when Slackware 15 was released. To make it easy on myself, I'm going to go back in time by scrolling down the page. We're only that easy. Um, it is that easy. In this case, there's rocks 2112.3 at the bottom of the page. I happen to know, again, from looking at most slash var slash log slash packages that I have rocks 2112.1. So dot three seems kind of a safe bet. I bet I could get away with updating it a couple of little, a few points. It's probably not the best way to go about this, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I I really just want to see this thing run and then I'm going to uninstall it. Okay, so 21.12.3. I'll download that as a BZ2. Download it to my RAM disk. And then tar xvf rocks dash v twenty twenty one dot twelve dot three. There we go. Uh, and then cd into that directory. And I'm kind of looking around real quick. Like there is a readme for packagers. That's kind of useful. I'm not really packaging it for everybody, but the way that I build it will be as if though I was a packager. So that that could be useful. Tells me that it uses CMake. I'm pretty familiar with that, I think. So I'll just, I'll just do my usual sort of incantation of make dir b for build. I'm lazy. cd into the b directory. cmake dot dot. And then make dash j10. So I'm making it with a bunch of cores of my CPU working at the, at the job. And once it finishes building, I should be able to do a make install dest dir d-e-s-t as in destination d-i-r all one string all capital equals uh, I'll just put it in ram disk uh, rocks so that, that'll it'll create uh, the the directory that it needs so it's just installed this application into this specific directory if I go to it, if I go to my RAM disk slash rocks, there it is. There's user. That's the that's the top level. Now in user, of course, there's bin and then include and lib64 and share. And in there, there are even more applications. This is how Slackware packaging works. You 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 take what you would have put onto your computer and you put it in a temporary location, and then you use a command as root called make pkg. Make PJ, pkg dash c dash n dash l uh, sorry dash c n dash l y. I don't remember what that stands for off the top of my head, but the way I remember it is that if you look at it dash c n dash l y, it kind of looks like the word only. And there's a Slackware repository out there called Slack Only. That's how I remember it. Make pkg dash c n dash l y. Uh, and then we'll just make this package in um, home clatu dash rocks dash twenty one dot twelve dot three dash x sixty four no sorry x eighty six underscore sixty four. I feel like I've forgotten a number in here. What what should this number be? Hold on. Let me look at the actual name of this package. Rocks dash twenty one twelve one. Okay, dash. Yeah, okay. And then so at the end, x86 underscore sixty-four dash one, because this is the first build of this package. Um TXZ 
is how I will end it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's correct. So I'm just in the place where the, the, the package exists and I've just created a new package. And now I can do an upgrade pkg and then give it the path home clatu ram ram disk rocks dash 2112.3-x86 underscore 64-1.txz. Now it knows when I say to upgrade that package, it knows what I'm saying is find a package that matches this on my current system and replace it with the one that I've given you, which it has just apparently done. So now if I try to launch rocks again, this time I should be launching 21.12.3 and it has launched. So I don't know what was wrong with 21.12.1. I don't know. Maybe I recompiled something that it needed at some point. I, I'm not really sure. I, I honestly cannot cannot guess because I don't believe I did anything like that. But here we are. This is it. This is the uh, this is the application. The help file, the documentation is pretty good. I I would probably write it differently personally, and and I guess I could try to do that if I really wanted to get into it because um, it is kind of cool. But um, I think I would have probably discussed sort of the the interface a little bit more. Uh, I, by by that I mean the programming interface itself, like the 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 things that you have available to you. But if you know a little bit of JavaScript and you get the notion of um, referring to objects on screen and and how they might be stored within a data structure, you can kind of figure out at least the very very basics. So if you have Rocks. Oh, and, and the help, the, the, the documentation also explains sort of like who it's for. And specifically, it, it's, it's goals or it's, it's target audiences are lecturers who want to demonstrate algorithms to their students, students and researchers who want to see how their algorithm might perform, and anybody interested in data structures and algorithms. So, um, it's, it's for people who want to mess around with visualizing how yeah algorithms uh, perform how, how they work and so the abstraction here is that you have nodes and they may or may not be connected to one an- to one another and um in that way you you create a graph the graph is created in a in a canvas labeled by default new graph now, if you just want a bunch of data to mess around with, you can auto-generate a graph uh, using the menu graph document. Go down to tools and select generate graph. Uh, then it asks you what kind of graph generator you want to use, and you have to you have to choose mesh, star, circle, random, and a bunch of others. Uh, random tree, random DAG. I don't even know what that is. Path, complete, just a bunch of things. So choose random, choose some number of nodes. By by default, it's 10 with 20 edges. Do whatever you want to, say okay, and you'll you'll get something in the graph, um, in, in your graph window. Now you can also just hand create a graph, and that's what I'm gonna do just to keep things really simple. So there are, again, well, there's a selection arrow, to a selection tool, uh, a circle, that's your node tool, and then a little um, line, which is the, which are the edges. Okay, so now you've got some some graph, and the way that you 
uh, interact with that, of course, is the little Kate-like editor uh, the in the lower left corner of the window. And then there's a console on the right for output. So the I think one of the canonical things you're going to do is you're going to take you're going to look at nodes, right? I mean, you could also look at edges, but let's for now just say nodes. So simple JavaScript here is just var, you declare it as a variable var, um, var space nodes, for instance, equals document with a capital D. Document is the canvas, the currently selected canvas. You, I say currently selected because you can open up several documents in this window. They're tabbed. So it, it's the current selected one. Uh, so document.nodes, parentheses, parentheses. And that's, that's pre-programmed stuff. So document with a capital D refers to that window that you see in this application, the graph window. That's something that I didn't make up. It's just how it is. Dot nodes parentheses parentheses essentially is is invoking a function that says within this document find all the nodes, all of the nodes. If they exist in this document, they have been sort of tagged, if you will, or grouped together within this data structure called nodes. Uh, well, I should say nodes parentheses parentheses. I mean that's not technically the name of it, but I mean. That's different than var nodes equals document.nodes. I mean, I don't have to call it nodes. I could call it n or circles. Var circles equals document.nodes, parentheses, parentheses. Now, the, the word circles contains each node in the document. Well, I should say it contains all nodes in the document. If you want to get just one node, you want to just look at one node, then you have to do a for loop. A for loop is a programming construct, uh, algorithm, I guess, technically, um, control statement, uh, that, 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 that accepts that you're going to give it 20, 30, a hundred, a million things, two things, three things, one thing. It, it, you're going to give it a group of things. And for understands that part of the programming behind the programming language is that this for loop is going to take a bunch of things that you give it. It's going to separate it and it's just going to look at one by one by one. It's going to w- look at one at a time and then it's going to re- re- it's going to remember which one it's already looked at. So it's only going to look at everything once and it's going to do something. How, how long does it do that? Well, that's up to you. That's that's your control statement to make. So I'm going to do for space parentheses var i. Uh, i is just short for integer in this in this context, but it doesn't have to be i. It could be j, k, whatever. But i is relatively common here. So var uh, space i equals zero semicolon. So that's telling us where we're starting. I want you to create a variable called i and set it to zero. And just bear with me here. It, gets, it starts to make sense. Semicolon i less than circles dot length semicolon. So I'm saying right now i is set to zero, but for as long as i is less than the number of circles I have given to the for loop, each for each one semicolon plus plus i, and that's arbitrary. Um, this, uh, close parentheses, curly brace to open up a statement, the for statement. So here I'm just, I'm saying 
as long as i is less than the the total number of of circles then add one plus plus i two i so that means that once the for loop starts we're gonna with i is gonna be zero the computer's gonna look at the thing and execute that code the code that i haven't done yet and then it's gonna check it, are there still more circles left or have we exceeded the number? Is i greater than the number of circles? Well, if there are still more circles left, then we we increment i, and then we and then we start back over at the beginning. In the programming in the for loop, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be looking circles circles square bracket i close square bracket dot color, and I didn't know that existed circles square bracket i square bracket dot color uh, until I just started typing. Just circles, square bracket i, close square, square bracket. And I thought maybe there's a color setting to 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 these elements. And sure enough, there is. It, there's a pop-up window. It says, yeah, color. Got it. So I just hit return. And so now I know that each node can have a color. That's kind of neat. So circles, and, and again, the computer doesn't know like how, how does the computer know that there's a color attribute to this thing called circles which i completely made up well it doesn't but it does know that a node can have a color and it knows because i set the variable circles to be the set of nodes it knows that circles is a stand-in for whatever the current node is so i'm going to do circles square bracket i square bracket so whichever circle i'm on right now which is designated by the the number i which of course gets swapped out with a number right because each time we go to another circle i increment i by one uh, i'm going to set this i'm going to say dot color equals quote hashtag ff zero 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 close quote semicolon close curly brace that's it. That's the beginning. That That's the total program. What is that going to do? Well, if you know your hex codes for colors, you'll know that that's RGB or really RRGGBB. So FF is 16 in hex. So we're doing all pixels firing in red and we're doing no pixels firing on green or blue. So in theory, this should go through each node in the canvas, in the document, and turn it red. And then it'll go to the next node and turn it red. And then the next node and turn it red. And then the next node and turn it red. So I'll click run. And sure enough, they all turn red. There you go. That's my lesson on rocks. And that's about as, as much JavaScript as I know. That's not true. But certainly off the top of my head, that's as much JavaScript I know. Um, it's, it's pretty, it, it's actually pretty nice. Uh, I, I had my doubts. I was not clear on on the use case or the, the the purpose of this application when I started. And seeing the simplicity, the sort of the narrow focus of the application, and seeing how, how useful the autocomplete is, it's kind of nice. Um, you can also, so you have access to the document itself, which again is the graph. You also have access to the console. So you could do, for instance, um, you could do a little message to yourself every time. You could say console, console uh, dot log, and then parentheses quote. I have turned. Uh, let's see, co color set. How, how's that? Let's just keep it simple. Color 
set for node um, space. And then I, how does JavaScript concatenate things? Uh, space quote space plus I semicolon. Oh, wait, I need to close the parentheses. Then the semicolon. Uh, yes, color set, color set, color set, zero, one, two, three. Okay, cool, that's done. Like I said, the help, the help file, the, the, the user manual inside the application itself doesn't really make it immediately unless, unless I just missed it, which is possible. Um, I, I didn't see sort of like the list of, of the, of the things available to you. Um, it tells you there's a document and a console, but it doesn't sort of tell you w- what you have available in each of those. So you don't get like a class, a function, a, a listing of the functions and, and, and data types and things like that, that you have access to. So that's, a, I guess, a little bit weird. Um, and I, obviously I'm just doing the, the really, really basics here. All I've done is clicked on a thing and made some nodes and turned them a different color. Cause that's like all I really tried. There's other stuff. You can create your own node types. You can create your own edge types. You can interact with all this stuff. There's a debugger built in. A lot to mess around with, and it's kind of fun. It it really is. It's really um, more fascinating than I'd expected, genuinely. And how much so? Well, I'm actually not going to uninstall it. I'm going to kind of keep it on my system. I I don't know if I'll ever open it up again, but it's, it's kind of fun. So check it out. I mean, you might not, might not have a use for it. It isn't exactly as maybe necessarily as intuitive or, or, or quick to uh, get interesting look, uh, designing, design things on screen as for instance, Python turtle, which you know, I mean, you hear one, you see one example of that and you, you kind of get it. This is a little bit more complex than that. I'm sure it's probably a lot more capable than that for, for analyzing algorithms and visualizing data. Um, but once you kind of get some of the, the power of it, it is kind of silly and fun to just draw little designs or, or construct graphs or, you know, come up with an algorithm to turn, um, all the nodes a different color across a spectrum based on some input. Who knows? Whatever you want. It's it's a lot of fun. Check it out. It's called Rocks R O C S. No K. There are no K's in KDE Rocks. What there is a K in is coffee. If you spell it with a K. Whether you do or not, you should go get a cup of coffee. I'm gonna go get mine. I am gonna spell it with a K because my name is Klaatu. Starts with a K. And we'll come back and finish the show. <laughs> should have coffee at this point. If not, don't worry, I do. So there's a kebab place in Dunedin, about an hour away from me. And I, it's, it's a really good kebab place, but I was, I was ordering uh, a kebab when I was there last. And I noticed that off to the side, they had some canisters of coffee, probably spelt with a K. 
And I, I, I ordered my kebab and I thought, surely that coffee is there for them to use to, to make coffee. But something in the back of my head told me to just, just hazard, hazard the question. So I asked if it was for sale. And yes, it was for sale. It wasn't just a display coffee. It was coffee for sale. Go, go figure in a, in a restaurant. Um, you know, I mean, because sometimes you see stuff in a restaurant and it's not for sale because it's like actually being used by the restaurant. So I wasn't sure. But anyway, it was for sale. So I got some, I got a, I was very happy to get a, a refill of my, well, what I called Greek coffee. I've learned also that it's common in Russia. And now I have learned that it is also common. I mean, I figured it was, but it's also common in Turkey because this is a Turkish restaurant. And I think it's a Turkish restaurant. Yeah, I'm almost sure it's a Turkish restaurant, or at least the coffee I think says, yeah, no, it's Turkish, because I got Turkish delight there as well. Anyway, um, the coffee, it's really good. It's that fine powdery stuff. I've talked about it on the show before. You, you make it in a briki, and you, it's a stovetop thing. It's just a little pot, really, and you put the, the coffee into it, and it boils up, and it's just delicious. So I, I got a, a refill, and I was, I was nervous about this, because I, I moved out of the city previously, uh, that had the Greek coffee the the greek a, a greek uh food store in it and that's where i got my coffee my 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 greek coffee air quotes around greek right now because right now it's not greek coffee it's turkish coffee whatever powdered coffee that stuff like the powdery fine fine ground coffee i got it from a greek place and i no longer have access to that greek place so i've switched brands and nationalities uh, for my coffee, but it is delicious. It's really good stuff. And kebabs, by the way, turn out to be more like gyros than kebab. Uh, in in the U.S., a kebab spelled K-A-B-O-B, I think, or maybe K. Yeah, I think K-A-B-O-B is a um, is a a skewer with meat and vegetables on it. Uh, but apparently in in maybe the rest of the world, I don't know. There's this thing called a kebab. That's K-E-B-A-B, kebab, and it is a wrap. It's a soft bread uh, wrap, you know, with vegetables and uh, falafel. Or I mean, if you eat meat, you could put meat in there probably. But I, I get it with ve- vegetables and falafel, and and they just wrap it up and and you just eat it almost like a burrito, you know, something like that. So that was interesting to me as well. I didn't know about that until I moved to New Zealand. Because to me, for, having come from the USA, I to me, a kebab was a stick with either meat and or vegetables on it. And I never knew. Uh, well, I guess, I guess technically that is a shish kebab. That's how I've heard it in the USA. But apparently so elsewhere, uh, at least in New Zealand, and, and certainly I've heard it the same thing in the UK, and I've, I was in Australia and had kebabs, so there as well. At least in those places, a kebab, K-E-B-A-B, not, not a stick with meat on it. It's, it's a, it's a, a, it's a wrap. It's a burrito sort of, uh, meal. And it's amazing. It's the best thing. All right. Next up is going to be S-D-D-M. So this is the replacement to K-D-M. And I didn't know it was the replacement to K-D-M for the longest time. I just thought, I thought it was just called KDM, but nope, it's SDDM now. And so it's SDDM is a, it's, um, it isn't a KDE project, but it is a display manager for X11 aiming to be fast, simple, and beautiful. Uses modern technologies like Cute Quick. Remember Cute Quick? 
talking about that earlier, which in turn gives the designer the ability to create smooth, animated user interfaces. It's extremely themable, and uh, it's distributed with some themes, and so on. So there you go, SDDM. Who knew? Not me. Um, but you may have SDDM on on another system and not even realize it. You might not. Um, sometimes they ship with GDM. Or light DM, I think is what, what another one is called. But SDDM seems to be a, a, a fairly sort of uh, generic, not really tied to any desktop, although, you know, it, it is based on QML. So I, I think it, it probably does kind of get sort of you, you probably associated with, with, with KDE for that reason. But I mean, I don't see any indication that it is a part of the KDE project. Certainly, if it is, I, I don't see that. Uh, and it's um, it's the thing you see when you tell your Slackware system to boot to a graphical user interface. That's by default, that's what'll come up. So if you've got in your uh, init tab, slash Etsy slash init tab, I-N-I-T-T-A-B, if you have in your init tab, the default run level id colon four colon init default then it boots up to sddm probably kind of depends on how you've configured your system i mean if you told it to use xfce uh, i think that uses i think that uses something different i should know but i don't remember off the top of my head um or, or you could set it to use xdm uh, or you could install something different and and have that that load. But if let's say you've just installed Slackware, you've chosen the, the default or the recommended desktop KDE, and you tell your system init tab four is the default, you boot your computer, you're looking at SDDM. The other component here, the other package for SDDM then is the uh, configuration module for SDDM. And if you go to, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing it called SDD. Oh, it, it is. All right. Login screen, a, a screen, SDDM. Never noticed that. Okay, so if you go to system settings, go to startup and shutdown, login screen, SDDM, then you can choose the, the, um, what do you call it? The, the theme that you see when you, when you boot up your computer. By default, it'll be Breeze. But there are some, there are other themes. There's the, uh, what's it called? Ella Run. Uh, and that looks, at least to me, like that's the old, one of the old styles of KDM, to my eye. I don't know whether that's like literally the same one or like a re-implementation of it. And then there's, uh, Maldives, Maldives. Uh, it's got a nice pretty picture on it. And then there's a really basic one called Maya that's just kind of blue and, and plain. So take your pick, lots of different choices. You can set your own uh, background to it, which is really cool. Took me a long time to figure that out. I assumed because KDM, in order to change anything about KDM, you basically had to create your own KDM uh, theme package. It wasn't difficult. Like I, I, I did it for all of Slackware 14.0, the, the 14.x series of Slackware. I was running a custom KDM theme. It just it was gray with a penguin on it. It wasn't super complex. It was just simpler than what, what came with, with the default KDM. 
So I assumed it was kind of the same deal for SDDM, but as it turns out, no, you can you can just go to login screen SDDM, hover over the theme that you are using and click the little little icon for images, not the trash can and not the information, the one the other one, the one in the middle, change background, and you can load your own uh, load a, a, fi- a picture from a file and it'll load it into your d- display uh, or your login screen every time you, you know, that that's what you'll see when you, when you uh, start up. Really cool, really easy. So, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure there are lots of other features to SDDM that are a lot, a lot more exciting than that. But I mean, as a user who just wants to kind of, you know, change little things about their computer to make it feel personal, uh, that that's a really nice feature. I, I really appreciate that one. Honestly, I feel kind of like I see my SDDM screen more than I see my desktop wallpaper. That's probably not true because I do zoom out frequently of my desktop. I, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've upped my desktop layout to six desktops lately, virtual desktops. Uh, and I do, I, I zoom out fairly often. So I, I get little representations of the background. Um, but SDDM, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's there when I come to my computer in the morning it's there, you know, and if I put my, if I lock my computer, then when I come back, it's, it's there. So I don't know. I feel like I see SDDM, uh, at least as a full screen thing, sort of in a more significant way, maybe than my wallpaper. So it's nice to be able to change it. All right. Next up is ScanLite, S-K-A-N-L-I-T-E. This is an excellent, excellent application. This is the application that you want it to be. I don't, I, I guess there must be other applications to scan an image from a flatbed scanner. I don't know, but for uh, any, anytime I'm using a scanner on Linux, I just, I use ScanLite. I don't care what the desktop is. ScanLite is the one that I know. It's the one that I trust. It's great. It is, like I say, it's just exactly what you think it is. You launch it. There's a blank screen on the right and some, a couple of controls on the left. You click preview and your flatbed scanner does its little thing. It's a little zippy thing. It looks at the picture and it draws it onto the screen for you. Still shockingly slow, by the way. You'd think in, I don't know, 2023 that scanners, like flatbed scanners, would just sort of take a photograph essentially. But no, they, they scan like line by line. So it takes a, quite a while, but it, it previews and then you can select the area that you want to actually scan or if it's already been sort of auto-detected, then you can just click scan. And now you've got, you, you save it to your hard drive and you've got the image. It's really easy. It works really well. There's lots of different resolutions to choose from. So if you know you're just going to post something to the internet, then maybe you just choose 72 DPI or 150 DPI. If you know you need something really high quality because you're going to print it out again, then maybe you choose 300 DPI or something. It's up to you really simple. Those controls are over on the left. You can choose to save the color or to just take a black and white uh, scan and so on. There are defaults that you can set. You can tell it to increment numbers after you scan. So if you're just powering through something, like I have this old Unix uh, user manual pamphlet from 1982. I've probably mentioned it before. Uh, I got it at a used bookstore. It's not actually mine, but I mean, it, well, it is mine now, but I mean, it wasn't mine in 1982. I didn't know what Unix was back in 1982, but there was this pamphlet and I figured I should scan it in because it's old and I, I should just, I should have a record of it. So I, I, I scanned the whole thing in, but I mean, that's like, I don't know, 20, 30 pages, but you can just tell ScanLite, yeah, increment after every scan, just 
use the name that I gave you, dash 00001, 0002, and so on, and it does that for you. So you don't really have to worry about like renaming things. It's It's not, ex- they're, they're, I could, I still found a couple of places where it was like, well, I could do with fewer clicks. I could just, just skip over that thing for me, but it's, uh, it's still really good. And it's, it's absolutely, it just feels so streamlined and fast and simple and, and really what you want it to be. It, it, it's, it's quite nice. And it doesn't have to be, you know, just a standalone flatbed scanner. I mean, it can be. They're shockingly cheap these days. Uh, I, I was, I had to get one recently for legal, like passport applications and things like that. And, um, and, and it was just, it was a lot cheaper than I thought it was going to be. Cause I, in my head, they were like really expensive professional photograph, photography kind of equipment. It's no, it's just a flatbed scanner. They're a dime a dozen practically. You can get them in in printers these days, you know, the horrible printers that cost less than their ink cartridges cost. I mean, a lot of them just come with a scanner just because they're just well, like why not? So like and and, and Scanlite recognizes a lot. Um it it uses the the sane subsystem, so it it it, it talks in sort of this generic but generic enough to be all-inclusive essentially um and i say all-inclusive not meaning literally all i'm sure you can find a scanner out there that does not get detected by scanlight and that won't work with scanlight but more often than not in my experience you plug something in with a flatbed scanner in it to to linux you launch scanlight and it all just kind of connects it just works the the buttons might not work on the you know if there's like buttons on the scanner. Those might not work. You might have to install something separate for that. Scanlight technically has something that is supposed to sort of like detect those those button presses, and I've not been able to get that to work. I haven't tried beyond just a few clicks, but uh, th- that's, you know, something to be aware of. If, if you think, oh, I've got a scanner, maybe Scanlight will work perfectly with it. Well, it probably will work perfectly for it, but, but f- specialized hardware buttons on that scanner may not be recognized. That may not matter to you. It doesn't matter to me. But just be aware that that might take extra configuration. But generally speaking, in my experience, plug a device that has a flatbed scanner integrated into it, into your Linux computer, start up Scanlight, and just start scanning stuff. Like I say, it could be a printer. You don't even have to install the drivers for the printer or configure it as a printer. You can just use it as a scanner. Scanlight sees it and uses it. It's really, really nice. And again, I'm not saying Scanlight is unique among applications necessarily. I don't know. I haven't, like, Scanlight is just the one that I, that, that, that was on my Slackware system when I got a flatbed scanner and I've used it ever since. I don't remember when that was, but I, I remember having it. I mean, I was using Scanlight, I guess, before I even had a flatbed scanner, because like I say, it'll talk to ba- basically anything with a flatbed scanner. So if I borrowed someone's um, printer with a flatbed scanner on it, then I could plug it into my laptop and make a scan. And that's what I've done for, for many, many years. So there there may be there are other applications out there that, that scan. There are other ways of getting a scan into your system. But Scanlight is the KDE scanning application, and it works great. Highly recommend it. I, I see that the next one in the list is Solid. And Solid is um, a fascinating piece of kit. And I, I don't know that I have the time to talk about it 
right now. So I think I'll save that for next episode. I could be wrong. I might just say a couple of words about it and move on. But I I feel like it's something that I'm going to want to talk about. So I'll just, I'll leave it for next week. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Yeah.